Well, good evening, everyone. Um, thanks very much, Rachel, for uh, praying, and thanks very much, Paddy, as well, for making your way through that pretty lengthy uh, reading that we are going to go through uh, this evening. You might be relieved to know we're not going to go through it exactly verse by verse by verse. We could have been here for a long time, um, but it would be really helpful if you uh, keep that passage open with you, because we will be sort of going back and forth as we see um, all that Stephen is going to bring uh, for us this evening. We um, often hear uh, of people uh, spoken of as ending up on the wrong or right side of history, don't we? Depending whether someone's past views or actions have ended up subsequently being condemned or vindicated or approved of, well, that depends. That depends which side they end up on. Men who, perhaps around 100 years or so ago, continued to argue that women shouldn't get the right to vote, well, now they're definitely on the wrong side of history, aren't they? And uh, to take another example, the flip side there, those who first spoke against the tide in the culture around them of abolishing the slave trade, they were ridiculed and rejected at the time, but now, well, we know them as those who are on the right side of history. And in tonight's passage, I think Stephen is going to effectively ask a similar question of those who are accusing him. And then he's going to ask that question of us today too. When it comes to history, which side of history will you be on? And as Stephen is going to allude to, and as the final section of our passage, Stephen's death is going to show, the answer to that question is going to ultimately come down to our response to Jesus. But we'll come to that in a little bit. First off, let's, let's set the scene and remind ourselves of where we are. Stephen, uh, we read last week, was accused, wasn't he, of, of these two things, of teaching that the Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and that he will change the law. So as the high priest asks him at the start in verse 1, are these things so, Stephen responds, doesn't he, and defends himself. And to do that, Stephen essentially gives a history lesson, doesn't he? Rather than tackling, though, one issue at a time, he builds up his defense more broadly than that, coming alongside those who are standing there accusing accusing him by showing them from their shared history both Stephen and they, right, are Jews, showing them from that shared history that they have completely misunderstood both the temple and the law. Let's start with the temple. Here's Stephen's defense number one. Stephen's going to demonstrate that those he is speaking to have misunderstood the temple. As I said, both of these lines of defense aren't a straight line line defense. We're going to see this scattered throughout. So do uh, try and track with me as we go through these. See, it seems that for these Jews, these Jews who are accusing Stephen, in their zeal to defend the temple, they've actually begun to lose sight of what the temple was actually all about in the first place. The temple, you see, was never meant to be a place that that all of a sudden confined God and his work, confined his holy presence. It was instead meant to be a place of worship, 
a place of worship for God, worship to God and God alone. For these Jews, it seems that in their zeal to defend the temple and it being the one and only place where God dwells, they've almost replaced God with the temple. The building has become the big thing rather than God himself. They've begun to reduce God down. And Stephen is going to have absolutely none of that in this speech. See with me how he teaches those accusing him from their shared history that God is the God of the whole world. He can't be constrained. He can't be contained in a temple or or even any other special place like the promised land alone. He's the God of glory. And his holiness will go with him wherever he goes. See this first off in verse 2. Stephen says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Remember, Stephen says, drawing alongside his listeners here, that that before we even had these promises of land, and before the temple was even thought about, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia, a land not even close to the promised land. And notice Stephen's wording, the God of glory appeared. Even in Mesopotamia, that far-off land, God's glory was on show as he revealed himself to Abraham. But that's not all in this part of Stephen's history lesson. Jump on now with me to Joseph and verse 9. We read of Joseph being sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. And perhaps those listening, well, they're thinking, aren't they? Egypt, that heathen land. But look, the end of verse 9, sold into Egypt, God was with him. Okay, so we are seeing here that God, again, he is going with his people wherever they go. He's not constrained or contained in any way. And then, of course, jump on with me to verse 30. And here we're in Mount, at Mount Sinai. A mountain where? In Gentile territory. And yet it is there that Stephen reminds his hearers the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Look at verse 31. When Moses saw the burning bush, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And in light of God's presence, his holiness, Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground holy ground. It's interesting wording, isn't it? Holy ground outside of the temple, outside even of the promised land in Gentile territory. Stephen's point is this, God can't be confined. His presence can't be localized into one little building. He is the God of the whole world. And wherever he goes, there goes his glory. There goes his holiness. Listen, Stephen says, it isn't all about the temple. It is about God. The temple was about worship of God. And just look how Stephen puts it in verse 48 now. 
Having shown all of these examples from history, quoting from Isaiah 66, he says, Yet the most, high, the most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Unlike how it seems these Jews were now viewing it, the temple was never designed to confine God, but to be a place of worship to him. A place of worship to the God who is so big that even the whole of our earth is just like a footstool to him. Picture that. Our earth, 12,756 kilometers in diameter, as if a little footstool for God to rest his feet on. Yes, the temple did play a big role in Israel's history. As we see in verse 44, Stephen himself has a high view of the temple, doesn't he? He notes there, doesn't he, that it even reflects something of heavenly realities. As the, as the tabernacle, the predecessor of the temple, it was made, wasn't it, according to the pattern that Moses had seen on the mountain that the Lord revealed. But Stephen is making this completely clear. It isn't all about a specific building. It should be all about God. A God who in his glory and his holiness transcends any building or any space of any kind. He made all of the spaces, all of the buildings in the first place anyway. They are his. So as Stephen recounts the history that he shares with these fellow Jews who are now rising up against him, He's defending himself. And he's saying, listen, you've misunderstood the temple and what it's all about. It's about God. He is the big deal. He is the Holy One, not the temple itself. Of course, while we're in a, a different position today, we would do well, I think, to remember something of these truths today too. Maybe... We've even uh, come to know this church building as our one holy place in our lives. But the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Of course, it's good to meet together in this way. As Steve said at the start, in this place, we seek God's face together. We seek his presence. We seek his guidance. We come and look to Christ together. But just as these Jews seem to begin to confine God into this one building, let's not do the same in our lives. Let's remember God is the God of the whole earth, the whole of our lives. Let's let God and his presence into every part of our lives, everywhere we go. Let's not just see some section that we can devote to him maybe each and every Sunday. But let's keep moving here because there's lots to, to keep going through. Let's now see how Stephen also demonstrates, again, from the shared history that he has with those accusing him, how those accusing him have again misunderstood the law. This is Stephen's defense number two. See, it seems that alongside missing that God's presence and his glory and holiness can't be confined only to the temple, this is something else that the high priest and the Jews who are coming against him have missed. 
how time and time again in the history of God's people, they have rejected God, rejected his messengers, and have failed to keep his law. Did you notice as Paddy read this thread running throughout? Just look how he comes back to this again and again. First off, we see this in the person of Joseph, don't we? If you look with me at verse 9 again, we read there that the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. At this point, it's more of a passing comment as Stephen gets going, but it's enough to begin to see where we're going to end up. Because he then begins to ramp this message up, doesn't he? As he continues to share this history lesson, this overview, as he moves on to the person of Moses. We see in verses 27 to 29 in particular that despite Moses seeing that he would be the one through whom God would bring salvation to the people in Egypt, his people turn against him. They say, don't they, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? As if that wasn't enough, Stephen then continues to ram home his point, doesn't he? Picking back up on the same Phrase, in a few verses later, in verse 35, he says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And then, to make matters worse, he reminds those listening to him that this wasn't the only time that Moses was rejected. In one of the most shocking moments in Israel's history, when Moses himself was out at Mount Sinai receiving the law that these people rejoice in and glorify. Well, he was receiving these living oracles. We'll hear verse 38 and 39. At the same time, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Stephen uses Moses, the one these Jews seemingly love, Possibly even more than God. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 11, they say, they accuse accuse Stephen of blasphemy against Moses first, then God. Well, Stephen uses this Moses, who they hold in such high high esteem, to show the depths of the sin of God's people. When they should have been rejoicing in their God. Rejoicing in the God of all creation, revealing himself to them in the law. What were they doing? Rejoicing in a little golden calf that they themselves had created. Time and time again, God's people rejected God and they've rejected his messengers as Joseph and Moses show. And then, as Stephen goes on to confirm, he declares in verse 52... Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Joseph faced rejection. Moses faced rejection. And so did all of the prophets of God. 
These weren't isolated examples. This is the repeated pattern of history. God sends a messenger, a redeemer, and what happens to them? God's people reject them, even kill some of them. In some ways then, building on this, the rejection of God and his messengers, his prophets, verses 42 and 43, I think, sum up Stephen's defense to do with the law. If you look with me, those verses, verses 42 and 43, Stephen's quoting from the book of Amos, and they show the Lord doing something striking. Because of the people's rebellion, he gives the people over to the worship of the host of heaven, to the worship of Moloch, a Canaanite Phoenician god of sky and sun and the, your star of your god, Rephan. Stephen's point is this. This is all of our hearts. Time and time again, we fail to keep God's law. Because we fail even to keep the first commandment that we received from the Lord. Do you remember what that was? You shall have no other gods before me. So quickly and so often, God's people in the past turned to the worship of other things. And it's true of the people that Stephen's speaking to. And it's true of us today as well. Maybe we... Don't turn to the worship of Moloch and Rephan. But there are so many other things we can turn to the worship of. Money, comfort, pleasure. Maybe we begin putting our family, our work, or even our reputation above our God. Stephen is saying to those he's speaking with, this is our story as God's people. Are you not seeing this repeated pattern? Well, it's going to be on show today too. In fact, says Stephen, this is exactly what is on show. Look with me at verses 51 to 53. As Stephen turns the screw in his defense. Listen to what he says as he sums up what he's seeing in the people in front of him as they replicate the exact same behavior that he's saying the far, their fathers have demonstrated before them. Stephen says, essentially, verse 51, it isn't me that should be standing here. It's you. You're the ones who should be accused. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and people who always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen says to those condemning him, you who love the law, do you not see that you yourselves fail to keep it just as your fathers did? Even to the extent, as he said there in verse 52, that rather than rightly rejoicing and worshipping in the coming of the Messiah, the righteous one, you have betrayed and murdered him. Also that you can go on worshipping your own man-made idols. 
Stephen says, you accuse me of being anti-law? Well, look at yourselves in the mirror. If you can get a mirror, that is, that can pierce through this external facade and see what's really going on in your hearts, it's going to show your sin. And of course, as we see Stephen's accusation here, we have to be real, don't we, and reflect on our own lives today too. Just like these Jews Stephen is speaking to, we, by nature, are also those who resist the Holy Spirit, who don't keep God's law. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us actually where the giving of the law was meant to leave us in the first place. Looking to God. Looking to God, because if the law was all that we had received from God, well, it would condemn us. Condemn each and every one of us here this evening. But it isn't all that we've received. And we see a final glorious thread running right the way through this speech that I think points us to this. See, did you notice that right the way through, all that Stephen said, he was pointing to the fact in this shared history with these fellow Jews that it was always, only, ever about God's work, not theirs. Only ever, it's about God's work, not our work in keeping the law. Time and time again, God's people rejected God's messengers. They broke his law, yet that wasn't the end for them, was it? At no point do we see in this history, that's it, enough. No, we see God's grace and faithfulness that we sang about right from the start, and we see God at work. See this with me as we, in passing, glance back through the speech. History is all about God's work, not his people's. Not even the work of those he sent to be messengers and deliverers. Verses 2 to 8. Well, they kick us off with the person of Abraham, that great father of the faith. And yet there, who's the one at work? Look at verse 5. God. We see God. It's God who promises a land to Abraham, who promises an offspring for him. Then in verses 9 to 17, we move on to Joseph. Again, who's at work? Who is it that rescues Joseph and then begins to use him to fulfill his purposes? Verse 10, God. God rescued him from all his afflictions, meaning that his family ultimately would be saved from starvation and meaning that they would then continue to increase. Increase in number, just as God had promised, right, to Abraham. In verse 17, we see the fruit of that. God's people increasing and multiplying in Egypt. God is at work. And of course, then we see in verses 18 to 36, God's continued work through Moses. Look at what he says there. Verse 20, we get this little hint, I think of this thread. Stephen says, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. It's God. God's going to use this baby, this Moses, to accomplish his purposes. Which is what we then see happening if we read the rest of that account that Stephen puts before us. 
As again, even despite initial opposition, we read in verses 35 and 36, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And this man leads the people out of Egypt, performing wonders and signs. This is God at work. God's above all of this. He's redeeming, saving his people. And we see this again in verses 45 and 46. As we see Joshua and the dispossessing of the nations. Is it all Joshua's work? No, it's God's. Verse 45, we read, it is God who drove out the nations. God who is at work to fulfill his promises that he gave right back to the beginning to Abraham to give the people a land. God is at work. This is such a key thread that I think we have to see in what Stephen's saying here. And it points us to the fact that those accusing Stephen have completely misunderstood the law. The law and its purposes. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 puts it like this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was given to show us our sin. And as part of that, it shows us then our need of God. Which is why this thread that we see running through the history of God's people is such good news. Because the law shows us that we need someone who can rescue us from the condemnation that law brings with it. And the only person who can do that, we see time and time again, is God. And I love this because, of course, Stephen has already been there. He's already been there in this speech. He's been showing again and again from history that it is God's work, not ours, that's going to help save us. That's going to bring about God's purposes. And right in the heart of what he says about Moses, there's this glorious little section, this promise. Look with me at verse 37. Stephen says to those who are coming against him, listen, you guys love Moses, well, listen to him. Listen to what Moses said. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. God's work was never going to be completed in Moses and the giving of the law. God's work wasn't completed in Joshua and the conquest of the promised land. His work wasn't completed even in Solomon and the completing of the temple. No, God had also promised to send another, another to come in whom and through whom he would once and for all fulfill all his promises for his people. He would send the Messiah, the righteous one, the Christ, who would redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And seeing this, here's where that leaves us then. Those Stephen was speaking to back then, 2,000 years ago, and us today. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the question of how will we respond? How will we respond to the coming of this Christ, this Messiah? Look at verses 51 and 53 again as we think about that. Do you notice, or did you notice, as we were being read earlier, 
the shift that happened in these verses. All the way, again and again, up to this point, uh, Stephen has been saying, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. But suddenly, in these verses, Stephen switches. He switches. He says, verse 51, your fathers. Verse 52, your fathers. And I think here's his point. He's saying that he, to those he's speaking with, listen, we do have this shared history as God's people up to a certain point. But here is now the dividing line. The dividing line in that shared history. How will you respond to Jesus? As Stephen went on to say in verse 52, those in front of him, how had they responded to Jesus? They had betrayed him and murdered him. They'd rejected him. And so now, if they continue in that way, they will stand in the long line of those Israelites before him, before them who have resisted the Holy Spirit and rejected God and his messengers. Jesus is the dividing line. He's the dividing line as to which side of history we are going to fall on as well. And so as we turn now to this final section of our passage, the death of Stephen, I want us to hear this challenge that I think Stephen and then Luke, as he picks up Stephen's story, is leaving us with. Which side of the dividing line of history, that dividing line of Christ, will you be on? And as we hear this challenge, that question, and turn to this final section, I hope and pray that we will see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he did come to do for his people, for those who will come to him, will have him as the Lord in their lives. As we see this, look at verses 54 to 56 with me, first of all. We read that after Luke had finished by implicitly condemning those who were accusing him, by talking of their betrayal and murder of Jesus and their failure to keep the law, we read that when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold... I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen has just spoken in the past, in those last few verses there, of the righteous one. And now, in the face of this hostile crowd, this reaction, they're coming against him, this opposition, well, God pulls back the curtains, as it were. He pulls back the curtains for Stephen and he shows him his righteous one, his savior. This vision, I think, was given to Stephen to strengthen and encourage him. And I think it should strengthen and encourage us here tonight too. If we, like Jesus, like Stephen, will also come to Jesus. Because you notice something really interesting about what this vision shows us and tells us. What is Jesus doing in this vision? He's standing at the right hand of God. He's standing. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read of Jesus 
sitting. Sitting at the right hand of God, like in Hebrews chapter 10. And he sits because it shows his sacrificial work while it's completed. There's nothing more for him to do. But here we see him standing. And given Stephen's looming death here, I think this is what's being pictured for us. As those there on earth, in front of Stephen, condemn him, soon will stone him to death, Jesus in heaven, well, he's standing and he's taking up his position as defender and witness for Stephen before his father's throne. He's going to vindicate him. He's going to say before the father, this one is mine. I've died for him. And every one of his sins, they've been completely paid for at the cross. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. He said this, So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, isn't that what Stephen's just done? I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is glorious. This is what I believe Jesus was doing right then. Looking down from heaven, he is standing before his father and saying, this one is mine. The world are about, is about to condemn him. His earthly trial, well, that's going to see him condemned. But this is his heavenly trial. And in his heavenly trial, he is going to be completely acquitted, completely cleared because of the blood of his saviour who is standing and speaking on his behalf. Before the throne of God above, Stephen's going to stand. But this vision reminds him that he has a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for him. Well, in heaven, Jesus stands. No tongue can bid Stephen depart. As Stephen dies, he will be welcomed into the arms of his Lord, into the arms of his Savior forever. Seeing Christ standing before the Father as his advocate, well, that must have been such a strength and help to Stephen. Because we see in verses 57 and 58, don't we, the response of the crowd who rush at him, cast him out of the city, and stone him. Even as Stephen faced the most cruel of death, even as the world cast him out and killed him, he knew his future, his eternal future was secure, was safe because of Jesus. Look at what he cries out in verse 59 as he dies. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Stephen dies, He knows this. He will be safe in the arms of his Savior. And seeing this then brings us back to that concluding challenge and question, I think, that we just posed a moment ago. Which side of the dividing line of history will you end up being on in eternity to come? We read, don't we, of the crowd stopping their ears rushing at Stephen, 
They're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, they will face judgment. Because as we've said, the law brings with it judgment. But if we will come to Jesus Christ, well, then there is hope. If we will come to Jesus, put all of our trust in him, look to him for forgiveness, that righteous one who right now is risen and reigning in heaven exactly as he was when Stephen had this vision, well, one day he will take his stand for us too. And he'll say of us, this one's mine. This one's mine. I've died for him. My blood was shed for him. His debt, her debt has been completely paid. Will you come to Christ this evening? Because if you will, complete forgiveness and eternal life is being held out to you. No matter what your past has looked like. Look, even as Stephen Stephen dies, he sees this, doesn't he? As he cries out in verse 60, for the Lord not to hold this sin of this unjust, brutal execution against those who have come against him. No sin is too great for the Lord Jesus to forgive. His blood can cover them all. Your sins may be as scarlet, but they shall be white as snow. Come to Christ this evening and receive his forgiveness. Just as very soon one who was in this baying crowd here will. Verse 58. Saul, soon to be Paul, the foremost of sinners, who we read in Acts 8, verse 1, the next verse after this, approved of Stephen's execution. And yet soon he will know this very same forgiveness that Stephen is rejoicing in at this moment. And he's going to become not the foremost of sinners, but the foremost of evangelists who's going to go to the ends of the earth to speak of this forgiveness. Come to Christ this evening and find forgiveness. We can't keep the law. We've seen that again and again this evening, but we have one who has perfectly kept it for us. And as we finish, if you're a Christian here this evening, let me just encourage you in this way. As you go through this coming week, keep lifting your eyes to the heavenly realities that we've closed with here. Lift your eyes to heaven and see the glory of God and Jesus sat at your Father's right hand, your advocate, who just as he did for Stephen, when your time comes, he will also stand and say, this one, they're mine. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for this example, Stephen's example of faithfully holding on to him, even in the midst of the worst of opposition. Lord, we thank you for how he has shown us in this, our need of Christ. Lord, we thank you for his compassion that even as he prayed at the end there, he was asking that these sins would not be held against those who came against him. And Lord, we thank you for that answer of that prayer in the person of Saul, Paul, 
who would see his sins forgiven, even this sin of being amongst those who executed Stephen. Lord, we thank you that there's no sin that can separate us from you if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this glorious vision that we've seen here of Jesus standing at your right-hand side as an advocate, as that great high priest who will claim us for his own because of his death, his saving work on the cross. Lord, help us to rejoice in that, when that give us strength and hope this week. Whatever comes our way, we thank you that if we are in Christ, we are on the right side of history. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to close by uh, singing this song, Your Grace That Leads This Sinner Home, From Death to Life Forever. Isn't that a great picture of Stephen? This grace that leads him home. He dies, but he goes to life forever with his Savior. Let's stand as the musicians play and sing this together.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.